This is a Rook Media Series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 9. Hi there, and welcome to the Contemporary History of Iran, a series from Rook Media. This is Part 9, The Rise of Opium. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Our aim with this series is to explore the events, personalities, and issues that have shaped modern Iran. We want to do this as much as possible through a non-traditional lens, through snapshots of change, and using alternative voices or angles. This series is mostly in English and will feature a new episode posted every Thursday across our Rook Media platforms. We will post subtitled excerpts with Farsi Zirnavis on our YouTube and Instagram sites. We are coming to you on rookmedia.com. It is there that you can link to all of our platforms and we invite you to check out parts one through eight of this series that have already been posted. The Contemporary History of Iran is brought to you in part by Yazdani Law Group. YLG is one of the largest Iranian-Canadian immigration law firms. Their mission, rooted in the leadership of founder Afshin Yazdani, is built on continuously striving to innovate and introduce new immigration pathways for their clients. Afshin began his career as a lawyer and law professor in Iran, and his company has now made it their goal to provide the best, simplest, least risky, and most inexpensive way to immigrate to Canada. YLG has an impressive track record, hundreds of applications from Iran successfully processed every year. They are at YLGPC on Instagram. That is Yazdani Law Group. All right, let's get started. Here now is the Contemporary History of Iran, Part 9. Well, in assessing the contemporary history of Iran, we want to not only look at wars, politics, and monarchies, but social habits and cultural trends as well. Some elements may be a source of affirmation for Iranians, like the great history of Persian carpets or Iranian cuisine. But some social realities are less cause for exuberance, but just as important to discuss. Addiction and substance abuse and abuse would be in that category. You may have heard that Iran is estimated to have the highest per capita percentage of opioid addicts in the world. So what are the roots of that level of consumption? Indeed, how is it that opium became a major substance in Iran in the Qajar era, along with tobacco, and reached a zenith in consumption and production in the early 20th century? And was opium use always a negative? And when did it shift from a medicinal product to a recreational and more dangerous one? Well, my guest today is an American expert in early modern Iran and knows the subject matter of this episode quite well. 
Dr. Rudy Mate is a distinguished professor of history at the University of Delaware with expertise in Middle Eastern history and an exclusive focus on the Safavid and Qajar dynasties. He is the former president of the Association for the Study of Persianate Societies and the recipient of numerous awards, including the Albert Hurani Book Prize by the Middle East Association of North America, the Saidi Sirjani Book Award by the International Society for Iranian Studies, and the best foreign language book on Iran, twice awarded by the Iranian Ministry of Culture. His books include The Politics of Trade in Safavid Iran, Silk for Silver, 1600 to 1730, Persia in Crisis, The Decline of the Safavids, and The Fall of Isfahan, and germane to our discussion today, The Pursuit of Pleasure, Drugs and Stimulants in Iranian History, 1500 to 1900. And right now, Dr. Rudy Mate joins me from Newark, Delaware today. Hello, sir. Very nice, Jian. Uh, thank you so much for this very kind introduction, and thank you for inviting me for this interview. Thank you for doing this. Uh, if I may, I must confess that it was a bit curious for me that the foremost authority, or one of them on substance use in Iran during the Qajar era, would be a non-Iranian. If you don't mind me asking to begin, how did a Dutch man named Rudy become the go-to guy on Iranian history? <laughs> right, that's a very good question, and I'd be happy to answer that. Um, well, I was an exchange student in Iran in 19- 1976-77, so the last years of the Shah. And so I spent a year in Tehran, and as part of my stay, uh, of course, I, you know, I had friends, and I spent, um, you know, a little bit of time, not that much, but uh, in the forest of Gilan with these friends, where we smoked opium. So I became acquainted with opium right there, and with its potency and its addictiveness. Um, and then later on, and you know, I, I didn't become addicted or anything. So this was a one-time experience, so to say. And went back to Holland and uh, ended up in the United States, and did my dissertation with Professor Nikki Keddy at UCLA. And she was asked to do a paper on drugs and stimulants in Iranian history. And she asked me, being a research assistant, to do some preliminary work. And I did. I wrote a paper, and then she sent me to the conference in London instead of going herself. As I presented my paper, it was published later on, and then I picked up an interest and combined with my experience, I ended up writing a whole book about not just opium, but all kinds of uh, drugs and right, substances right. in Iranian history. That, I mean, that's, I guess in academia, you call that empirical evidence. You, you, you've, you've been to the source. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Participatory uh, observation. Right. right. Um, <laughs> well, it makes sense. It makes sense that you're, you're the guy for this conversation. I mean, if I can just start with trying to pull some context here, you know, I, there seems to be quite a delta between East and West when it comes to discussing opium in that it was really nowhere on the radar for me as a kid growing up in the West in the 80s and 90s uh, and talking about drugs, although I know it's not unrelated to heroin, of course. But, you know, my dad, who was an old, much older than me and grew up in Iran in the mid-20th century, would relate drug use of any kind to opium, which always sounded so old school to me. Does it basically break down that way between East and West in the last couple of centuries? Well, in a way it does. Uh, first of all, opium, of course, is totally embedded in Iranian history and society, and that is true until today. When I lived in Iran, uh, you know, I had friends who got their opium from their granddad uh, because uh, the Shah had clamped down on opium as of 1969, I think, with the exception of old people. 
who were beyond retrieval, I suppose. And so they could get their opium from the local pharmacy a certain amount every week. And so the sons or the grandsons, rather, would sometimes get a little bit from their uh, granddad. Uh, But to come back to the point, um, you know, there is this sort of dichotomy. Opium is, of course, very indigenous to to Iran and and the region, Central Asia, subcontinent. Uh, It wasn't really known in the West. It was known among the Greeks, but didn't really make it to Europe until much later. And so there's also this notion in the Western world that opium is sort of bound up with a languid orient, you know, right. sort of lying right. about completely, uh, you know, passive and, and right. as right. opposed to the industrious and activist West. Uh, and that's definitely not the way I look at it, but it is definitely a stereotype. True. Right. there, we, we have our drugs in the West, too. Let's not uh, pretend that that's a, drug use is only an Eastern concept. But but it right. is intriguing. Just as we're defining terms here, can you give us a basic sketch? What What is opium? Well, opium is basically the extract of the poppy plant. Um, and uh, so it's... Uh, you know, extract it, and it, and it becomes this, uh, you know, sticky uh, material, and then it's processed in blocks or in, in little pieces, uh, and then from there you can do all kinds of things with it. And opium was, of course, uh, the the, the painkiller of all painkillers. Even our modern uh, chemical painkillers are still derived all from opiates. Right. Uh, so we haven't improved on that, um, which is one of the reasons, by the way, why it was so indigenous in Iran and not just in Iran. And so effective in, in many ways. Uh, but uh, so, and then, you know, traditionally, of course, opium was ingested, eat, eaten uh, in the form of uh, little pills, needed. Uh, later on, uh, it came to be smoked, uh, which is, of course, a completely different process. So it's interesting that you say that um, opium is indigenous to Iran because in my research, when I was reading up on this, including in your book, it, it, it's basically said that opium use in Iran was pretty much unknown before the 19th century, although it had been widespread around the world, you know, China especially, and that this somehow changed during the Qajar era, and opium starts entering Iran in significant numbers by the early to mid-1800s. So, so uh, square that circle for me, if you will. How, how so? When did opium start to become a, a substance that was actually popular for Iranians? Well, opium has always been around in Iran, and we don't know when it started. It's sort of lost in the mist of history, uh, but it was known long time, centuries, millennia before uh, the Qajars. The difference really is that until the 19th century or the 18th century, we don't know exactly when this started, um, the opium was tended to be ingested, was taken in the form of, uh, of pills. It's only in the 19th century that it came to be smoked, which is, of course, a form in which we uh, know it. So that is the major change. It's not opium itself, but it's uh, the, the, the way in which it is uh, consumed by people. Why does opium in the 1800s first take hold in a bigger way in the eastern side of the country, in Mashhad? And, I mean, is, is it just because of the proximity to, I mean, today it would be Afghanistan, where, of course, uh, it's the biggest uh, producer of opium, but at that time would have been the proximity to China? Well, there, there are two sources for that, I think. First of all, the soil, the combination between soil, climates, uh, water, uh, availability of water is perfect in eastern Iran. 
and that holds for Khorasan and Yazd and Kerman, the entire east, eastern reaches, which doesn't mean that the western part is not suitable for the cultivation of, uh, of, of the poppy. It's just that the east, I think, is even better and more perfect. Iranian opium was always considered to be the best in the world in terms of its morphine percentage, but also the overall quality of it. Uh, so that is one reason. But the other, And the other reason is, of course, that... Um, or most likely, uh, that uh, has to do with the, f with the um, transformation of the way it's being consumed, because that is an Eastern phenomenon. Most likely, um, the habit of smoking opium, uh, first of all, came from the East, from China, and from the Dutch, what is today the, uh, Indonesia, the Dutch East Indies. So it penetrated Iran from the East. Indeed, uh, most likely Mashhad as a shrine city, as a, as a center of pilgrimage of the la, the eighth Imam, was kind of the, uh, the ground zero for this development. Pilgrims coming from all over, from Afghanistan, from Central Asia, from the Indian subcontinent, converging on Mashhad. And that is probably the origin of the smoking habit. So it's only natural that since opium then exploded by way of the volume being used, yeah. that the cultivation would also concentrate uh, in the eastern part. But uh, that the, the smoking, as I understand it from your book, is, is starts uh, predominantly in the later half of the 19th century and then into the 20th century. They, why, why did Iran or Iranians... I mean, you've made the case that it's indigenous to Iran. It started there, but just out of curiosity, I mean, when it's you know before the smoking part, uh, when it's these pills um, and it's medicinal, why does it in particular take off in Iran? Why is it more widespread in Iran than than other places in the world? Yeah, that has to do, I think, with socioeconomic conditions, and meaning that Iran was always a poor country, a hard scrabble country, and very much um, short on exportable. Uh, products. Uh, silk uh, played that role in the 17th century. Uh, it was no longer relevant or, uh, you know, coveted by the outside world by the 18th and the 19th century. Tobacco, to some extent, it came to be exported. But opium became very much in demand. Again, you know, as I mentioned, Ira Iranian opium was known to be the best in the world. And China and the East in general became huge markets, having to do with the British Empire and their position in India. India, of course, became a major exporter of opium towards China, leading to the, the three opium wars. Uh, and Iran uh, got into the game as well. Not so much the British in this particular case, but Iranian merchants. Um, you know, this is the beginning of sort of the origins of Iranian capitalism, merchant capitalism, exporting new um, new commodities. So the Iranians found all kinds of ways to export their opium via Boucher, via the Persian Gulf, trying to circumvent the British and their fiscal policies and so forth. So opium then indigenously becomes a cash crop. Um, and that's the major change. It has to do with the transformation of agriculture in Iran. So opium is much more lucrative than cereals, uh, which right, tended to right. be uh, the, the main crop. Right. And in, in, in no small way does this transformation, meaning the, uh, the abundant cultivation of opium a, as opposed to cereals, contribute to the terrible famines that occur in Iran in the 1860s right, right. and the 70s. Let, let me get to that. I mean, you've said a lot there that is... is uh, really interesting. I, it, something that I just find so um, <laughs> intoxicating, <laughs> if, you, mm. if you'll excuse the the word, about this mm -hmm. about learning about the social habits 
of Iranians. I mean, I, I you know, as somebody of Iranian background, I, maybe I'm um, predisposed to this, but I find I- Iranians so fascinating the way Iranians acted in the 20th century and then in the 19th century. So for most of the 19th century, opium is something, as you've said, that it's eaten for, and it's used mm-hmm. predominantly for medicinal purposes. And you quote an observer of the times mm-hmm. who said that Iranians would take their opium in moderation, that in fact, educated Iranians would consume opium the way Europeans, the way the French would consume wine, like desirous of it, but smart enough to not overdo it. Can you, can you speak to that? Yes. Um, first of all, yes, opium was used medicinally. Indeed, it was the only uh, medicine available. Uh, so people used it as self-medication, for mostly for pain. It was the only painkiller. But it also would uh, put people to sleep, uh, and s- certainly little kids. And there the uh, comparison with wine is, of course, very interesting, because just as, or alcohol, just as Europeans would use brandy to put their kids to sleep, just a little bit, the Iranians would give the kids a little opium. Um, <laughs> it's sorry, it just sounds absolutely. It sounds wrong somehow, but yes, <laughs> but it is. Well, for, from our modern vantage point, of course, it's terrible. You know, right. it's uh, it's actionable. <laughs> but, right. uh, that's you know that's pre-modern life for you. And then the other thing is, of course, opium was used for a variety of purposes. You know, women uh, tended to commit suicide by way of opium, and not just women, but this was a typical way for women to get out of terrible marriages. So it, 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 it served an array of purposes. But they were not just medicinal. You know, ordinary people, work, working people, would get through the day, you know, short, miserable, uh, tiresome lives by taking, you know, little one little pill in the morning. It would get right. them through the day. Right. Just like German laborers still at 10 o'clock, they open their first uh, half liter of beer during their first break. You know, it's quite similar. So that comparison between alcohol in Europe and opium in Iran, I think is quite apt. It's completely embedded in life. The comparison is also, I keep thinking about, and I was, as I was reading your book, I keep thinking about how uh, cannabis, how marijuana is being transformed, at least in North America, to become this thing that you could buy in the corner store and that um, some people are using medicinally, some people use it to get through the day, uh, and that's becoming normalized. Now, we've grown up think, to, thinking that opium is much worse, you know, in terms of what it does for you and to you than, than marijuana, but there, there seem to be some interesting parallels there. What, yeah, what was- except that's that's true. I think, except for the fact that opium, of course, smoked opium is is far more dangerous right. because it's right. much difficult. More, it's more difficult to calibrate the intake. You know, take one pill and it's the same pill, the size of a pea, in the morning as opposed to smoking it. You in- and so it you inhale it and it's impossible to calibrate. Right, right. Yeah, I, I was just I was just referencing the pills, the way that they, and and the sort of incentives they the to take it as a as a kind of uh, well as an opiate. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the, the, the other thing that's fascinating to me about this that this social behavior is that it the people who were using opium. This is again before the smoking, before the recreational use were older it was it was a thing for older people i mean you talk about they they, they would take a, an opium pill each day in the afternoon um in the in the era, era this is like older folks at least over 50 years of age uh and you quote one medical practitioner of the time saying nine out of ten iranians over the age of 50 would take one to five grams of opium a day can you speak to that so yeah the, i to come back to the comparison i think it's it's apt 
as long as it's ingested by way of pills. Uh, and, and the other thing, and it's also related, I think, is that as long as people didn't overdo it and didn't become addicted, it was totally acceptable. It was not nothing extraordinary. There was no blame attached to it. And uh, it's only addicts, and there were addicts, mostly Sufis, you know, sort of ant antinomian Sufis, wandering uh, dervishes, uh, who were notoriously addicted to both uh, alcohol and opium, uh, who were frowned upon. You know, their behavior was, was seen as blameworthy and contrary to religious uh, precepts. But opium as such uh, was never, never ran into religious problems because, well, first of all, it's, it was, it's not mentioned in the Quran or in any of the prophetic sayings. Uh, and second of all, uh, again, because it's, it's, it's very old and it, and it served a useful function in society. It, it was integrated so much so into the daily life for your audience that is it true that coffee houses would offer opium? You would go to a coffee house and, you, and you'd order your, your tea or coffee and, and you could order some opium? <laughs> well, yes. I, I, I don't want to generalize that, meaning that all coffee houses would serve opium. It all depends on sort of the part of town in which they were located, I suppose. Uh, but they were known to engage in all kinds of activities beyond serving coffee, yes. Sometimes prostitution took place in coffee houses as well. And opium and other um, uh, derivatives uh, and, and, and drugs in general uh, were oftentimes on, on sale as well in, in coffee houses. Tell me about the shift then to smoking. Let's get to that. The change in the, in the later 19th century in the Qajar era when Iranians start to smoke opium. And, and the shift, of course, as you've made the case, from eating to smoking opium is significant because it represents a move away from using opium for medicinal purposes to uh, using it to seek enjoyment and uh, as a recreational substance, and which is also more damaging, more addictive. Um, why did smoking opium start to become the trend? Well, I think we talked a little bit about that. I mean, it's hard to pinpoint these things because the sources are uh, f uh, far and in between, fragmentary, um, and, and certainly not complete. And we have we depend a lot on outside sources. Uh, there's a lack of indigenous sources because you know people didn't really pay attention to this uh, until quite recently. Uh, but it, I think in the end, it's a confluence of factors. Uh, first of all. Uh, and, and perhaps most importantly, this transformation from uh, opium being grown sort of haphazardly to massively and semi-industrially as a cash crop in eastern Iran. Um, and then, of course, the outside influence. You know, they, they, the, most li the likelihood that this smoking uh, habit comes from the east and ends up implanting itself in Iran and taking over. And, you know, it's like drugs in general. Once you have a new wave, it sort of goes like wildfire. And before you know, the, the whole scene is, has been changed. Um, and then we have completely new patterns. And it's But it's hard to pinpoint exactly what the determining factor is. Does the profile, does the demographic of who's using opium change when smoking becomes the, the way of using it? Not discernibly, at least to my knowledge, because opium sort of cuts through all ranks and classes in Iran, always has, and, and I think that hasn't really changed. Even though, of course, at some point in the 20th century, it became somewhat uh, linked to the lower classes and, you know, people on the margins and so forth. Uh, so in that sense, there is a change. But uh, again, when that takes place, it's also not, also not that clear. 
even though, of course, we do have the beginning of, of regulation and government intervention in the beginning of the 20th century. But if it's uh, used medicinally by older folks before this, when they're taking those pills, uh, I've got to imagine that when it when the smoking come the smoking opium trend becomes the thing and it becomes a, a recreational activity that younger people are using that to party, right? Well, yeah, over time, of course, that's exactly one of the one of the changes that takes place. And I and but I, then we're talking in the, about the twentieth century and, ah. and late in the twentieth century, I would argue, really a part of this you know the so called nineteen sixties. Uh, transformation. So you mean even the when they're smoking it, they're still thinking they're using it medicinally in the in no, the 19th century. No, but I mean when you say when you use the word party, you know, <laughs> right, I mean right, immediately, right. you know, you don't think 1890s. What do you think? Yeah, or right, even yeah. 1925. That's not a <laughs> see the opium, and this is one of the this is part of the Iranian genius. I think all these substances, whether it's tea or opium or tobacco for for that matter, you know, the the water pipe. They turn into sociable events or implements used as part of sociable events. Whereas right. opium in Iran, in, in the West, and drugs in general typically are sort of, you know, they, they are linked to, to loneliness, male loneliness especially. In Iran, opium is still a very sociable event. You sit around the room, you have the brazier in the middle, and you have the tongs, and you have... So I have all the implements. You have to light the wafur, you know, the 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 pipe that goes around. Of course, you drink enormous amounts of tea uh, with it, and it's totally uh, it's sociability and it's mm -hmm. it's 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 mm -hmm. a communal event. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's that's also part of it. That's I think, but it's hard to prove. But that's my impression. Why opium, once it began to be smoked continue to be indigenous and whether you use party drug or not uh, it, it it acquires that that dimension and and it still does i think to a large extent even though i'm not quite sure about the scene today in modern iran and the islamic republic rudy you've talked a couple of times in this interview about uh, how uh, over the course of the 19th century opium production becomes widespread in Iran, the cultivation and exporting of the drug and making it a cash crop. Uh, and, in, and indeed, Iran becomes one of the centers for production. And this has economic consequences, um, given that the you alluded to this earlier, the massive cultivation of opium serves to displace lands that were previously being used to cultivate cereals. And this creates an imbalance in the production of food in Iran. Uh, and that leads to famine issues in the in the later years of the Qajar era. Can you can you talk about exactly how that happened? Um Yes, um, you know there were a number of terrible famines in Iran, eighteen early eighteen sixties and early eighteen seventy, and they were so terrible that they led to cannibalism and you know whole villages being depopulated and and you know decimation of the population. Um, and you know it's not simply, of course, the um, effect of the uh, the fact that a large uh, surface of the country had been dedicated to opium cultivation as opposed to cereals it does play a role uh, but it's not the only one you know uh, famines are not simply a matter of the absence of food uh, either in iran or anywhere else for that matter uh, they typically are about politics you know there are people and that includes the clergy historically in iran who were into hoarding 
um, and um, hiding uh, the harvest and, and, and storing it in granaries in order to wait for prices to go up and then to unload them and make enormous amounts of money. Uh, politicians and high clergy were uh, want to do that. Uh, the other one had to do has to do with transportation, or rather, the lack thereof. Iran didn't have any metal roads until well into the 20th century. No railroads until the 1930s, uh, and until that time, uh, it could happen that one region had abundant uh, uh, availability of food, and uh, next door, the next region, the next province, people people would be starving. Because grain is, of course, uh, massively uh, comes in bulk, and uh, it takes it's very expensive to to transport it. Uh, so th that juxtaposition occurs as well for that reason. So when we talk about cereals that are being displaced or you know ended in terms of the cultivation uh, and replaced by opium um, and the opium market, what what are we talking about? Rice, uh, corn? What, I mean, what? what no, what, no, no. We're talking about. Uh, uh, cereals meaning not rice. Rice was a luxury uh, food in Iran well into the 20th century. It was only abundant in Gilan and Mazandaran, oh. you know, the Caspian provinces. People across the mountains rarely ate rice, maybe a couple of times a year for, you know, during holidays. No, it's, uh, you know, the, 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 the uh, cereals that produce bread, um, you know, barley and, 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 oh. and wheat. Oh. Um, and so, so all of a sudden these pipelines of sources of food are being replaced by the, the cultivation of opium. Right. So that unmistakably plays a role in the incidence of famines in the late 19th century. What, I mean, I want to start to ask you about the role of the, the government, the, 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 the Qajar regime, uh, the Qajar rulers, and, and, and also the religious leaders through the 19th century and into the 20th century around opium. I mean, here's a case where, uh, why, why was the, the Qajar government okay with opium displacing cereals in, in terms of the crops? Uh, well, the short answer is that the Khajar government was weak, ineffective, and certainly not interventionist when it comes to economic policy. That's, those are modern assumptions, that the government is concerned about economic policy and, you know, raising the GNP. The Khajar government is mostly concerned about keeping the throne and, and manipulating the people around them in order to do so. Uh, so there's very little... Um, by way of uh, evidence that the Qajars are really concerned about the country and its well-being, even though, of course, that was their mandate from heaven, as it uh, as had always been uh, right. been the case. Right. But, it, but you know, no industrial policy, so to speak. I mean, there there are exceptions. You know, there's Amir Kabir in the 1850s, very briefly, but it's a flash in the pan, and then it's business as usual. And you know, uh, Nasruddin Shah, in particular, who rules from 1848 until 96, is not exactly an emblem of strength and royal uh, fortitude. What about the social disorder that starts to arise from addiction or issues for when, when smoking opium becomes a bigger deal? It's hard to, to say anything of substance about that. I don't think we have many reports about that. In other words, you know, the, the, the weakening of the populace, if you will, if you want to call that, uh, I'm sure it takes place, but it doesn't take alarming uh, proportions. And, and I can't think of any real uh, documentation in that direction. I, you know, uh, the, then there's religious sensitivities, and and I mm. and I can never, 
uh, I'm hopelessly, I suppose, naive and and trying to navigate how uh, Islamic decree works in some cases and doesn't work. I mean, Iranians by this point in the in the twentieth in the nineteenth century and, and early twentieth century are avid tobacco smokers. That that's from the Safavid era and continues in the Qajar time. Very widespread. You make the case about this in your book as well. That nineteen mid nineteenth century um, uh, tobacco had become one of Iran's leading export products. I mean, the Qajar rulers clearly didn't work too hard to curb tobacco consumption at first either, or even opium in the 19th century. How did they skate around Islam and religious sensitivities with respect to the consumption of of substances that I I would think would be anti-Islamic, wouldn't it? Well, no, but let me start here. Um, first of all, these rulers, of course, encouraged or at least did not discourage the cultivation of these crops because they also derived profit from that. They, they ended up taxing these uh, commodities. So why um, try to prevent it? Now, the religious element is a very interesting and an important one because unlike alcohol, the Quran doesn't speak about either opium or hashish or any other substance, of, uh, or, uh, including tobacco for that matter, which didn't even exist, of course, at the time. So that helps, uh, which and it means that these substances have never had any kind of religious proscription attached to them, meaning that the clergy were also not... Um, uh, upset about them. Uh, there was, of course, a debate, as there was in Europe, when uh, the newly developed or the newly uh, introduced substances, such as coffee and tea and tobacco, coming from the New World, uh, first made themselves uh, uh, made their appearance in the 16th century. A debate about the permissibility, you know, of, of this novelty, uh, you know, which in the case of um, uh, tobacco, of course, evokes sort of satanic origins with the smoke and foul smelling and so forth. So the clergy in East and West, uh, in, in Europe as well as in Iran, debated these issues. But that ended up being a foregone conclusion because, you know, smoking took over like wildfire. Everyone ended up smoking. Uh, so this was a lost cause. It was a, at best a rear guard battle. Uh, so, but again, to come back to the to the religious point, uh, there is nothing in in the Quran or in the prophetic sayings uh, that militates against these substances, and then they also become sort of the substitute for alcohol. As, uh, you know, alcohol is forbidden, at least. Uh, Which is why I would think it would be forbidden, <laughs> right? I mean, well, I like- yeah, but every culture needs its fun. It needs its 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 drugs. Right, you know, that's right. universally true. It's one or the other, <laughs> and this is kind of a foregone conclusion. Right. If alcohol is forbidden then you go with the other. And, uh, of course, alcohol is also consumed in enormous amounts, uh, but that's a different story. But officially speaking, uh, hashish especially, but also opium gain legitimacy uh, in the absence of legitimacy for the other one. What was the tobacco revolt of the 1890s? A fascinating and and informative, important and even a transformative moment in Iranian, modern Iranian history in the following way. Um, the, uh, of course, the late 19th century uh, is a, 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 a period of gathering unrest, social unrest, having to do with these famines and perceived misrule by the Qajar state uh, and uh, unhappiness un- about the state giving away concessions to the resources of the country to foreign interests and foreign powers, mostly British uh, firms and companies. 
Uh, and all that culminates in 1890 when the Shah gives away the concession to the tobacco production and uh, distribution and ultimately export to a British uh, firm. Uh, uh, and that sort of um, breaks the straw that, um, what's the term, breaks the camel's back. Um, Australia. <laughs> Yeah, yeah we understand. Like yes, right. somebody's back yes. is broken. Yeah, right, right. Uh, anyway, that is uh, a very important moment because all kinds of forces come together around that point. Uh, and uh, first of all, the merchants who are very upset about this for obvious reasons because they lost uh, their um, their livelihood. You know, the uh, collection and the distribution, the export of tobacco was given to a foreign national. Uh, the intellectuals were very unhappy with the state at that point because they wanted accountability. They were inspired by European constitutionalism, so they wanted to shackle the Shah and make him um, a reigning rather than a ruling monarch. Uh, and the clergy, very importantly, were also very upset about this for a couple of reasons. First of all, they were big landowners in the South, and they owned tobacco farms in the South. So for that reason, they were uh, upset about, uh, about this uh, move. Uh, but more importantly, perhaps, they saw this as a direct assault on the what they called the Bayzah Islam, the fortress of Islam, meaning the country of Iran as a bulwark against foreign interests and foreign intrusion. So giving away this concession to a foreign national was abhorrent to them in, in and of itself, but the more so because tobacco is, of course, not a natural, not, a, not any other, any, any kind of substance. It's a substance that goes through the body. You know, we're talking about the Qalyun, about the um, water pipe. Right. Uh, and there is this rule in Shi Islam that uh, concerns ritual purity. And foreigners were, by definition, meaning non-Shis, not just Europeans, but Sunnis as well, non-Shis were, by definition, seen as impure. Najis is the term in Persian. So by uh, letting foreigners touch uh, tobacco, uh, you defile tobacco, and especially a substance and that has to go through the body. So this was sort of the, the the culmination of this idea of impurity, and that really set them off. And the result was, of course, that you know there was this protest movement, this this popular movement without precedent, a consumer boycott. Uh, people stopped smoking tobacco to the point where the women in the harem of the Shah gave up their kalyan, uh, and the Shah was forced to repeal the whole thing and that became sort of a dress rehearsal for the constitutional revolution ah, of 1905 i was gonna i was gonna say why is it yeah why why is that it's such that's an why it's so transformative right. yes well well speaking of the constitutional revolution i mean you've it, it, it isn't until after that in 1911 that there's really an attempt to begin to ban the use of opium and this doesn't i mean the attempt just seems kind of lame it takes a few a period of years and there are other laws passed and all of them are generally ineffective but my question to take two steps back is you've made the case over the course of the this interview that you know the Qajar rulers uh, even the the religious leaders were relatively quiescent about the use of this stuff you know they didn't really want to intervene and let let it be or, or you know we're going to participate whatever what changed in the early 20th century um when it's clearly an issue in in terms of addiction suicide etc but what changed to make them actually want to do something about it 
The short answer is the international scene. It has nothing to do with Iran as such. There are no impulses coming out of Iran. It's because opium becomes an international issue. The addictiveness, uh, it's a you know, height of, of globalization. Uh, and very importantly, these substances, and this includes alcohol as well, become medicalized over time in the late 19th century. You know, a new approach... Uh, to science, uh, great uh, advances in scientific knowledge, but also uh, the emergence of psychology and sociology, especially in France. Uh, and so these substances become medicalized. They, be, they, they come to be seen as uh, detrimental to the, to the health of the body politic mm -hmm. uh, uh, through uh, being uh, um, uh, damaging to, to uh, individual uh, minds and bodies. But ultimately, the body politic becomes an issue. So the medicalization of these drugs become very important, and there's an alarm, and what gets underway is an international campaign to combat, especially opium, uh, in the form of a number of conferences that take place. And an important one is, for example, 1913 in The Hague, there's an international conference, that, which is the first one where sort of a general program and a campaign is um, is organized, uh, meant to be global, to combat uh, uh, production of opium. And since Iran uh, is a participant in that conference and wants to show uh, that it's on the way to modernity and has become a, a you know a, a good citizen of the world, so to speak, in the community of nations. Well, more than lip service to it, they promise to start combating opium. But it's an external thing and it's totally artificial because, uh, and and that's the reason why nothing really happens. But it is the beginning of a of a concern that, of course, uh, continues to uh, make itself felt throughout the uh, the Pahlavi dynasty and beyond. And beyond, and all and all the yes. way to today. I mean, it's it's uh, um, it, it's one of these episodes uh, of the of our history series where there's such a contemporary resonance because we can't only talk about opium use as something that occurred in the past. I mean, it, it may have reached its zenith in terms of the the popular consumption and production and in a public way in the in the late nineteenth century and early twentieth century, but. Um, opium is still widely available in Iran. I was trying to find statistics. The best I could find is almost 3% of Iranians over the age of 15, 2 million citizens or more, according to the Iranian government, are addicted to opiates. Uh, now, today, why has it been so hard for successive Iranian regimes to to handle this particular issue with with respect to opium and opiates, and and does the proximity to Afghanistan, which has now become the, the I guess the main producer of opium, have something to do with this? Well, the latter point I think is of vital interest. Of course, Iran is in the line of fire, and given the state of Afghanistan, nothing is likely to change anytime soon. But you have this, you know, nine hundred mile porous border between these two countries. How are you going to patrol that 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 border and and the frontier zone you can't can't put a, a soldier every 100 meters uh, so uh, i think that's the most important uh, reason why opium uh, the use of opium has proven to be ineradicable you know there's central asia there's afghanistan uh, and then the second reason i think is precisely what we've been talking about it's been so embedded in iranian culture that is kind of the still the the drug of choice for Iranians, and and of course we're no longer talking simply about opium, but about all the the, the modern derivatives, right. including heroin, of course. So even the youth culture, the global youth culture, which has sort of gone in that direction in general, uh, has embraced opium as a as a new uh, drug, 
Uh, I mean, uh, heroin is a new drug. Uh, in Iran, too, we have the same phenomenon. In other words, youth culture, global youth culture plays a role there as well. You know, it's the same with crystal meth, for example. Mm. Uh, you know, it's ubiquitous in Iran as it is ubiquitous in certain circles in the West. Back to 1977 and young Rudy Mate in, in mm. Tehran. Uh, how did you enjoy your experience with opium? Uh, well, I, I I found it very enjoyable, you know, because I use it in moderation. I, I did realize uh, how potent it is. I remember coming back on a minibus from Gilan after having smoked opium maybe two nights in a row with friends, and I had withdrawal symptoms, and I noticed, you know, this is this is terrible stuff. Wow. This, you have to be very careful with this. So I didn't really touch it afterwards, but I'll tell you that the professor – my own professor in Holland, who was the one who had gone to Iran five years before me on a simple on a similar uh, exchange program, he became an opium addict back home in Holland. Wow! And he lost his job. It took him ten years to get rid of him, but <laughs> it, that's that's exactly what happened. So you know, this is it was serious uh, serious stuff, and and I and I realized that. Uh, and it was not like you know, it was out on the street. You had to go look for it at the time. Where'd you the get last it? Last years of the Shah. Well, again, there were these friends, you know, who got it from their um, from their granddaddies uh, because they had their quantum from the pharmacy every week. So they would give a little bit to the grandson sometimes, you know, because it was well regulated at the time. You, you know, speaking of these vices and and. Um, I think your book on this subject is, uh, your previous book on this subject is so uh, fabulously titled, The Pursuit of Pleasure in Iran. I understand you're working on a book about alcohol in the Islamic world now. Um, what is the focus of the book and when can we expect it? <laughs> All right. Um, uh, it, the focus of the book, well, is alcohol in the Islamic world, uh, which right there is it means it's a monumental task because it runs all the way from the beginning of Islam until today and it covers the entire um, territorial spectrum all the way from Morocco to the subcontinent. I leave out Southeast Asia because it's already quite a task um, uh, but and it's fascinating because uh, you know alcohol it, it there's this never-ending tension between it's prescribed on the one hand and it's ubiquitous on the other hand and and so it it operates um, under this shadow of um, uh, prescribed by Islam and yet ineluctable and 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 unavoidable and you know it's a juggernaut that has taken all societies by storm, including Islamic societies. But that tension is always there. You know, one has to justify it. How to have your drink and 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 be a Muslim as well is, of course, the uh, the, the the question. Eternal, the never, eternal question, yes. Yeah, that can never yeah. be solved, really. Well. Uh, so, and it's coming out, um, well, optimistically, I would say at the end of 22, but more likely early 23. Well, I do hope you'll come back and talk to us about that. It is, It has been... Um, uh, really revelatory and, and also fun uh, getting to talk to you. Your your work is so engaging. I devoured that book on substances in Iran, and I um, and I really appreciate you uh, joining us for this episode and helping us out on this topic. Thank you so much. I thoroughly enjoyed it as well. Thank you so much for inviting me. Talk to you again soon. Bye bye. All right. Same here. Bye bye. 
Dr. Rudy Mate, a distinguished professor of history at the University of Delaware with expertise in Middle Eastern history and an exclusive focus on the Safavid and Qajar dynasties. He is the author of The Pursuit of Pleasure, Drugs and Stimulants in Iranian History, 1500 to 1900. We reached Dr. Rudy Mate in Newark, Delaware in the United States today. This is full time for the Rook Media series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 9, brought to you with the support of Yazdani Law Group, one of Canada's largest immigration law firms, YLGPC, on Instagram. Please check out our regular editions of Rook and all things related at rookmedia.com. That's our website, rookmedia.com. Thanks to the team who make Rook Media happen, producer Susan talented Anahita, Super Patty Saw, Ponce the Artist, the fabulous Kian, Savi Roham, Aray Merdad, Captain Reza and Groovy Shaya. Thank you to all of you out there supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you have not done so already. You can find me on Facebook at Gian Gomeshi. Mizun Bashina.